Well, welcome to the village. My name is Eric. It's really good to see all of you here tonight. Um, we're in a series in the uh, book of Acts, and uh, I haven't been here the last few weeks. Um, I've been on vacation seeing my brother in Tennessee. Thank you for that. Um, it, it was a really good opportunity. We were staying with him for seven days, and he's in a two-bedroom apartment with his uh, three boys, so it's uh, five of them, and then it was four of us, so there was nine of us in a two-bedroom apartment. It was kind of funny because it was, you know, one of those creaky apartments, so anytime anybody walked, you knew, you know, when we were going to the bathroom, when you were doing whatever, so it was fun. It was a lot, a lot of fun being in Tennessee and seeing his life and being part of it. Um, I just had a good time, so I want to thank you guys for, for providing that vacation for me. I want to also thank uh, Ron uh, Lehman and Stephen Hanna Yakeley for preaching the last two weeks. Wow, those, those sermons that they did, amazing. Um, and I, I really, really enjoyed listening to them. I actually listened to them um, some on the, when I got home. And so that, that was cool. Anyway, but we're in Acts 15. But before we get to Acts chapter 15, I feel like as your pastor, um, it was important for me to address some things that have happened in the last week with regards to the Supreme Court and their decision to um, say that same-sex marriage is the law of the land. Um, Now, at the Village, we don't tend to talk about necessarily what's happening politically, Um, But I do think it's important that I discuss this in context of being followers to Jesus, and in particular in our context as villagers and how we operate from our value system and all that kind of stuff. And so what I've done is I've come up with four kind of things to just kind of get into your mind and and, and make you think um, and make you wrestle with stuff. Um, and, and make you uncomfortable, I hope, a little bit um, as we deal with our ever-changing culture. Um, and in Acts chapter 15, the story that we'll be looking at, these two, two stories, these two narratives, our narrative in our culture now with same-sex marriage and then the narrative of Acts 15 um, work well together. So I'm going to start with these four things. Um, the first idea that I would like you to kind of look at is the church has always been countercultural. okay? The church has always been in a counter to the culture, all right? Now, what I'm, let me offer uh, why I think that by first going to 2 Timothy um, 3.16. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16 is, is a, um, a very famous passage uh, that's used often in talking about Scripture, but I want to read it to you. Um, so we're going to start in, actually... Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 17, actually. So we'll put the verse in context. So 12 says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, what's being said here to Timothy from Paul in a moment of, of, of cultural kind of turmoil is that the thing that we 
have to sit under, the thing that is breathed from God, the thing that communicates the identity of God and what God thinks is Scripture. Now, that, what that does is it puts Scripture as an authority in our life. And this is how, then, Christians are always countercultural, and that is that the government does not dictate reality for us. Scripture dictates reality. And so all discussion about all things has to come under Scripture. In fact, that word God-breathed is not good being translated inspired, as some translations do that. It's literally the breathing out of, of God's breath. That's what these words are. Um, and so what Paul, the writer of the letter to Timothy, is telling Timothy is like, hey, here is the how um, Scripture is useful. And how is it useful? Well, it, it rebukes us. It trains us in righteousness. It teaches us. It gives us a way of living and a way of being. And it, it, it equips us. Okay? So as we wrestle with issues of sexuality... Within our culture and within our church, we always have to come under Scripture. Now, I don't have all time all today to kind of make this case for you, um, but what you see within the church is an argument about what the Scriptures say about sexuality. But here's what I would offer you, is that that is a distraction and a deception on both sides. Because the reality is, is that from the very first verse of Scripture to the very last verse, so I'm talking about the end of Revelation to the beginning of Genesis, I would argue that every single verse offers an idea of the way it was supposed to be. Scripture is about the way it is supposed to be. And it argues that that there is a creator, and out of that creator he creates man and woman, and man and woman reflect his image together and that their union is a a complete image reflection and that marriage and children is a thing that's designed that comes from the design and you can go on and on now so what we do then is the dialogue about sexuality is a dialogue that happens around the way it's supposed to be and the way it's supposed to be is very clearly articulated within Scripture. Okay? Now, one of the things that's really hard for us and makes us squirm, even as followers of Jesus, is that we're Americans, and in particular Americans who who are younger than 40. I mean, every generation has rebelled against the previous generation, but this generation has shirked most authority. It does not like authority. And so when a community of Jesus followers comes and says that there is authority that does explain the way it's supposed to be, this become, this is a part that makes you countercultural. Okay? So here's the first idea that you have to kind of keep in your mind as you think about the decisions and things that your government is making and your community is making, and that is that the church has always been countercultural. Okay? It's always been that way. Now, Number two is that sexuality is messy and relationship is messy, okay? Sexuality is messy 
and relationship is messy. Now, the other interesting thing about Scripture and what it offers you as a narrative is this idea that sexuality and relationship is messy, that the fall has made things to be broken in us. Now, here's the thing. Our gender and our, our sexual compulsions and all the things that we kind of wrestle with, they're messy. And they're driven by hormones and testosterone levels and DNA and environmental factors and all these kinds of things. And that is that sexuality is messy. It's super messy. It's messy in the church and it's messy outside of the church. We have a compulsive pornography problem. We have issues of affairs. We have issues of, of divorce. We have issues of gender confusion. We have issues of sexual abuse. We have issues of just, we could go on and on and on of you know, how messy it is in relationship and in sexuality. And the two of those are always together. Okay? So, we, so the church has always been countercultural. But the reality is that we live in a world where sexuality has always been messy and relationship is always messy. And as we enter into relationship with one another, with Scripture as the authority that we sit under, we have to realize that we are on a journey together towards Jesus and towards a discovery of what it, of what it is to be living out the way it should be together. And that means that we're all in different places and we're all wrestling with different things and the journey is messy and our sexuality is messy and the situations are going to be messy and that's just the reality, okay? Point number three that I I want um, to, to point out to you and that is that the government does not lead the church. This is really key. The government does not lead the church. Meaning the government does not tell the community of God what is good and right, Okay? The government does not dictate how we are to do things. Now, I want to quickly go to Luke chapter 22, verse 66 and following, and show you a picture of what it looks like for a follower of Jesus, or to, to imitate Jesus, in dealing with power, okay? And dealing with um, how things are supposed to be. So Jesus has been arrested and he's been brought before um, the elders and this is right before he meets Pilate. And it says, At daybreak the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together. And Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, will you believe me? And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying, I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Now, here's the reality that Jesus offers to power, and that is that Jesus is the ultimate power. That Jesus rules over all things. And this is an important thing. The government does not dictate to the church. Jesus, who is king over all, appoints government and dictates how the kingdom of God is to be. Okay? So the message, when power is in opposition to the way it should be, 
is not the condemnation and the and here's the consequences and you're all going to hell and we'll talk about that in the fourth point but the message of the follower of Jesus is that Jesus is king you are not and that the king of the universe came and be, got into the messiness and died for the messiness and rose from the dead because and and was victorious over the messiness and gives us hope of eternal life and life with God in the kingdom where life is the way it's supposed to be. Okay, And so the job of the follower of Jesus is to announce to, to, to the federal government, you are not king, and when you make statements that follow the king, we will applaud you, and when you make statements that do not follow the king, we will say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. But then instead of judgment, we would move to our fourth point. And that is, it is not our place to be the judge. It's not our place to be the judge. Remember, I've been talking over the last few months um, about Matthew 7 and about taking the log out of your eye before you take the speck out of other people's eyes. The way that we're supposed to interact in the Christian community is that we are supposed to offer each other good judgment. Right? But before we offer each other good judgment, we should be looking at ourselves and taking the log out of our eye before we help another remove the brokenness in their own life. So that's how it's supposed to function in the community of Jesus, but it's also supposed to function that way out in the world, that we need to be people who do not have the log in our eye before we're taking out the speck in the eye of the world. Now, here's the key thing. In Matthew chapter 5, I believe, verse 41, I think this is where it's at, um, Jesus talks about a concept called the second mile, right? And here's the idea that in the first century, a centurion, a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier could take, when he's traveling, if he found a a traveler, he could say, no, you carry my burden for me for a mile, right? And that traveler had to carry the burden. Now, what Jesus says in that is that you need to carry the burden a second mile. You need to go a second mile. Now, um, Michael Kuzno offered this idea to me, and I think it's a really good idea, um, and I think it's the way that the church acts as non-judgmental while telling people who's king. And so here's the process that you walk through. We can easily tell everyone, look, this is the way it's supposed to be. Man, woman, marriage, sexuality within marriage, family. That's the way God intended it to be. And then there's a whole bunch of more intentions within that that we all have to follow to follow and and live into. But this is the way it's supposed to be. Now, if a gay person wants to get married, somebody who, 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 same-sex marriage, they want to get married, they want a cake, they want flowers, they want a venue. We as people who are Christian photographers, Christian cake makers, Christian whatever it is, as people with whom we disagree with or feel that they're living in a path of destruction... We say, yes, we'll make you a cake, and you can buy the first one, but we will give you a second cake for free. We will give you a second photo package for free. We will give you the venue with a discount. We will give you counseling, extra sessions. We, here's the thing. We are going to go the second mile for you. We don't have to agree. And we don't even have to think what you're doing is good. And we can even say that. 
But our job is not to judge the world. Our job is to offer the gospel to the world. And what was it that Jesus did? Jesus died on the cross. He told the world who he was. And then he died for the world. Jesus went the ultimate extra mile. And so, as we head into Acts chapter 15, and as we live in the culture that we live in, let me just offer these four points that I hope at least make you somewhat uncomfortable. That the church has always been countercultural. Sexuality is messy and relationship is messy. The government does not lead the church. <clears throat> and it is not our place to be the judge. Now, let's move to Acts 15, because in Acts chapter 15, we face a similar situation. The church faces a similar situation as we do today, only it's slightly different, and so we will address that. It says, some men came down from Judea. Now, what's happened is that we, we heard previously about how Peter had this big transformation and he brought the word of God to the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles and then we've got Barnabas and Paul. Paul's converted, Saul's converted and his name is changed to Paul and he stopped persecuting the church and he begins to, to encourage the church and push them toward Jesus and, and great things are happening and Paul and Barnabas um, are in Antioch now and they face... Um, some opposition. So it says, men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay. So here, here's, here's the idea that, that's happening. is We've got these Jewish people who've converted. They think Jesus is the Messiah. They think he's God. But they're still, because... Christianity is predominantly a Jewish um, faith. They're still following the Torah in the sense that they're following the food laws, they're following the purification laws, and they're following the Sabbath laws, right? And so they're saying, hey, if you're going to be a Gentile and be a Christian, then you have to do the same, and you also have to be circumcised, because that's where the covenant is happens with the Jews. Now, here's the important thing, and here's an interesting transition. Jewish, the Jewish faith is a predominantly a male faith, right? Women don't get circumcised. Men get circumcised. They're the ones who are marked as the people, all right? But in Christianity, we're about to change things because if Christianity is, or the followers of Jesus are a faith that is only for is it going to be a faith only for men, or is it going to be a faith for both men, women, and children? Right? Is it going to be a faith for men and women? And this is an important thing. This is a, a changing moment in history. This is not just an argument over Jewish law. This is an argument over what's the place of women in, in the faith and the followers of, as followers of Jesus, and what's their role in the community. Okay? And so Barnabas and uh, Paul are not very happy about this. So it says in verse 2, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about the question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. 
And, and so they go down um, through Samaria, and, and what happens is people are excited to hear what God is doing with the Gentiles. And then they get to the meeting in verse 5, and it says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor the fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they had finished, James spoke up. Okay, now here's, here's an important thing. There's a, there's a problem that's being faced. Um, and it, it's a serious issue. And what's really fascinating to me is that the first thing that happens is that we have Peter standing up and telling a story of what God has done. Okay? And then we have Barnabas and Paul standing up and telling a story of what God has done. Now, if you're in a community, there's always conflict. If you're in a community of followers of Jesus, if you're in a marriage, if you have roommates, if you're you know, working with people, there's always conflict. Conflict is, is part of this broken world. But when you're in a community of followers of Jesus and there's some kind of conflict, and the first thing isn't a conversation about what the Holy Spirit is already doing in people, If grace and mercy is not the first conversation, if the actions of the Spirit of God in transformation is not the first thing we're talking about before we get down to the nitty-gritty of the little point that we disagree with, then you're in the wrong church, village or any other. Get out. Get out. Because the primary thing you want in a community of God, a healthy community, is that when there's disagreement, the Holy Spirit is talked about and the actions of the Holy Spirit and the things that God is doing is brought up first because we want to focus on what God is doing before we focus on the problem or the disagreement because we want to have perspective. And this is a huge and powerful thing to do in your marriage if you're married um, is that as you come into a place of conflict that if you step back and just say for 10 minutes all we're going to do is just have a little discussion about what God is doing in us and in me and what he's saying and what he's done in the past before we come back to this issue because when we invoke the Spirit and the Spirit's action, our hearts are begin, begin to be softened. Okay? Now, it's key in, in church um, disagreements that stories of what God is doing aren't the only or the primary driving force, though. You see, Peter says, hey, look, here's the story of what God has done. Why would you poss- Why do we want to put a foot on the Gentiles' neck and make it real difficult for them? Because it, it was difficult for us before we, we met grace, right? And, and so, but, but you can't just go on that. Just because a powerful character 
stands up and tells a powerful story about what God's doing. We can't be like, oh, well, that's what we all need to do then. Stories of what God is doing and, and the implications of those stories must be then backed up and affirmed by the authority of Scripture. So James, the theologian of the community, stands up and says this. Okay, and we'll pick that up in verse 13. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of the men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, that they have been known for ages. Now that comes from Amos. Now, he, he quotes the scriptures, he shows how the scriptures affirm what Peter is saying and what Paul and Barnabas are saying, and then he offers an interpretation. And he says, in my judgment, and that's a key, he's saying, reflecting on the stories and reflecting on scripture, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning from God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and the elders, those with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas, they chose Judas, called Barabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the followers the following letter. The apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm my word of mouth by word of mouth, that we are writing what we are writing. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and from meat, of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouragement. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Now, it's a, it's a big chunk of scripture, but I wanted you to kind of get the, the big picture of, of James' interpretation. And I want to talk about a few things, because it's really fascinating that the, what they conclude is that sexual immorality is a thing that everyone needs to abstain from. And then there's a set of food laws that they still think need to be held on to. And they say that this, this will make it easier 
for you. And they completely removed circumcision, which, you know, I'm sure many of the men were happy about. But what's interesting is then, then they are really concerned in this letter as to the fact that these Gentiles were disturbed. It, it's obvious in the letter that it breaks their heart. That there's a consciousness that, they're, that, the, that what religion does to people is, is, can disrupt them because it's set with all these rules and all these regulations and really it, it creates a, a, a place where we lose sight of the grace of God and who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and in the resurrection. Okay? But I think there's a key in all of this that we need to look at that's really, really important. And that is that it's about fellowship. Like that word fellowship. Um, the, it is about eating dinner together. Right? Always, Christianity is about eating dinner together. There's something very spiritual about food. Think about it this way, and, and I talk about this a lot, but we all know this. No matter who you're hanging out with, if you sit down to a really good meal and there's a good conversation, and then there's a really tasty dessert that somebody put time into, and there's yummy coffee, and then afterwards maybe you play a fun game, or, or you play some, some music and sing together, or you laugh, or unexpectedly someone pours out their heart and you pray for them. Whatever the context of that, when you walk away from one of those times, you're deeply moved, and you're moved spiritually, and you're enriched, okay? Now, you have to understand that you have Gentile Christians, followers of Jesus, who have no food laws, and have no rest laws built into their their general culture. And then you have followers of Jesus who are Jewish who have lots of purification rites and a Sabbath law, a rest law every week. And you're asking these people to come together and eat. And if you do not realize what's happening here in this, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit that you abstain from some of these things, is that they're saying, Gentiles, please compromise a little bit. Jewish people, people who are followers of Jesus, Compromise a lot. So that what? We can eat dinner together. Because what is food? We cannot live without food. Right? And in fact, our very faith as followers of Jesus is built around the broken body of Jesus and the wine poured out as a symbol of his blood. It's an eating faith. And, and, and eating reminds us that we cannot sustain our life on our own. We need something outside of ourselves. It reminds us that without Jesus, we have nothing. And so... To come together as a church and to be effective, we have to sit and eat together and talk together. Now, here's a fascinating thing. You know, yes, maybe there's some food laws, Sabbath laws issues amongst Christians, but in this community, one of the fascinating things to me is, what is it? Eating together is still difficult. Eating together is still a difficult thing because some of you are vegetarians. And some of you are strict paleo people. And some of you are seafood people, meaning you eat whatever is in front of you. Some of you are junk food addicts. Some of you are not paleo or vegetarian, but you're strict diet people. You, you, you watch and uh, your diet, you, you eat healthy, you eat small amounts of meat, you eat lots of vegetables. Right? It's, we're all over the spectrum. And yet we have to come together every week and eat together. 
We have to come together and with each other in our homes and figure out how to work it. And the thing that the scripture says to us is that the issue of our food laws and the issue of our rules of how we all should function are not part of the gospel. Okay? And they must be. And when they begin to detract from the main thing, which is salvation through Christ alone, then we need to, to modify them so that we can bring ourselves back underneath the cross. Now here's the thing that I just want you to take away tonight. There's a lot of things in here, but the real one I want you to remember, and it's the one that brought this, this argument to a point with Peter and, and Paul and Barnabas and the Pharisees, who were followers of Jesus, um, is that what brings somebody into the kingdom of God and what makes somebody a follower of Jesus? And it has nothing to do with their sexuality. It has nothing to do with their circumcision. It has nothing to do with their gender. It has nothing to do with what they eat or don't eat. It only has to do with what Jesus did on the cross, what Jesus did in the resurrection, and what Jesus did in the ascension. That's it. And it's all done for us. And the only thing that we have to do is to embrace it or not embrace it. Okay? That's it. That's all that there is. Salvation is through Christ alone. It's a good reminder. It's a thing we need to hold on to. It's the thing that rules over all the arguments and things that we wrestle with in community. It's Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. Now, I want to go back to those four points because now we face an issue within community and church where the government has made some choices to say marriage or the union of two people, and they're using this word marriage, um, of two same-sex people is the same as two different-sex people. And that's not what the church says, not what the scripture says, that's not what the community of God says for the most part. right? And so that's a struggle. But I hope then that these four points that I gave you offer some ways to figure out how to table together, how to be in fellowship together, how to wrestle through these things. And the number, so I'm going to go back through these. So for those of you who are happy about the law that was passed, and you think it's a good thing, I want you to hear that your pastor is saying that it's not. And that scripture clearly states that there is a different way to being and holds up a different way of being. For those of you who are angry about the decision of the Supreme Court and who just want everything to be okay and not be messy and not have to deal with, with people who are in a whole different lifestyles and different ways of being than you are and different belief systems. The reality is that you're called out into the world and that sexuality is messy. That sexuality is messy and relationship is messy and you and I as followers of Jesus are messy and we're called into the mess. Okay? I hope those of you who, who believe that somehow the government should model itself after the way the church realize that the, the government doesn't lead the church and that it's not our role to beat them into it. That we don't look to the government for guidance. And so for those of you who do that, I hope you hear your pastor saying that's not the right place to be. And for those of you who just want to constantly tell people that the consequences of their behavior is this, this, and this, and that, they're, and that everything is going to heck in the handbasket, to hell in the handbasket. Um, I hope you hear me saying, 
It's not our place to judge. We need to go the second mile. It is not a judgment to say it's the way it's supposed to be. That there is a way it's supposed to be. But while we're saying it's the way it's supposed to be, we have to go the second mile. Because this is the way the church has done it from the beginning. When people would not bury their dead, Christians buried their dead. When people abandoned their babies in the forest, Christians adopted their babies. When people were alone in prison who weren't followers of Jesus, Christians visited them. And this is, when, when there were no hospitals, Christians built hospitals. When people are dying of the plague and, and nobody would deal with it, Christians went in and died of the plague and helped people. This is the way of the authentic church, is to go the second mile in the world without losing the way it's supposed to be. I hope that makes you uncomfortable. I hope that it makes you awkward, feel awkward. Because, And here's the thing I believe about the village. Guys, we are primed to be in the time that we are because we're already awkward, right? We're a bunch of awkward people. That's why we're at this church. That's why we don't fit in other churches is that there's just an awkwardness about us. And so we know how to be awkward. So this should be something that we're good at. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the community. Thank you for the way that they love you. And I ask that as we face new trials and new um, ways that our culture is moving, that you would give us wisdom and grace as we love on and hang out with and bless our friends and neighbors. And I stand in your name, Jesus. Amen.